Hey, what's up Seekers, welcome back. We've been going here on the channel on a wild ride into Maimonides' mind and universe. In this week's episode, we're going to be exploring Maimonides' theory of knowledge and how one might just, according to him, activate their mind by uniting it with and transforming it into the divine active intellect. And make sure to stick around to the end to catch Maimonides' radical, beautiful, and brilliant rereading of a core principle of Judaism in a stunning way that only he can. Let's go. Now that we've set up Maimonides' peculiar and particular 12th century cosmology and metaphysics, we can flow right into his epistemology, his theory of human knowledge, epistemology coming from the Greek episteme, meaning knowledge, and logia, meaning discourse or words about, epistemology, words or discourse about knowledge. Maimonides' epistemology begins with the active intellect, the cosmic intellectual principle which, as we've said, governs everything from the realm of the moon and down, the sublunar realm, the active intellect receives the divine overflow from the nine intellects preceding it, and ultimately from God, and flows forth to all that is beneath it, namely to us down here, humans at the end of the cosmic chain. As Maimonides writes, commenting on Psalm 36.10, through the overflow of the intellect that is overflowed from God, we intellectually cognize, receive correct guidance, draw inference, and apprehend the intellect. Maimonides reading the biblical reference to light coming from God in whose light we see light as an allegory for the overflow coming from the divine through the active intellect to us. And a little later on in the guide, Maimonides writes, It is fitting that our attention be turned to the nature of that which exists in the divine overflow coming towards us through which we have intellectual cognition, stating his case very simply that it is through the overflow coming from the active intellect that we have any possibility for cognition at all. Our very capacity for intellection, in Maimonides' view, comes solely and directly from the overflow from the chain of separate intellects, the Sichlin Muvdalin as they're known in Hebrew, and comes directly to us from the last of the separate intellects, the active intellect, the Seichel HaPoel. Maimonides understands this intellect, which flows into the human, to be the image of God endowed to humanity spoken of in the first chapter of the book of Genesis. The intellect for Maimonides is the image of God in the human the sole aspect which the human and the divine have in common, if we could use such language. Which one 12th century Jewish-Spanish philosopher, whose first and last name both start with a M or Mem, would definitely say we cannot. Because as Diana Lobel points out, for Maimonides, human and divine knowledge have nothing in common. Knowledge is a purely equivocal term. Namely, there is no legitimate comparison to be made between human knowledge and divine knowledge. The same one word, knowledge, is being used in reference to both of them, but it is referring to two different things entirely, which, as per Isaiah 55.8, share no comparison whatsoever. And yet Maimonides, commenting on the Genesis narrative of the creation of mankind in the image of God, writes, Mankind possesses something very strange within them that does not exist in anything else found in the sublunar realm, namely intellectual apprehension. In the exercise of this intellectual apprehension, no senses, no body part, no limbs are used, and therefore this apprehension is likened to the apprehension of God. It is because of this divine intellect conjoined with mankind that it is said of the latter that they are in the image of God and in God's likeness. And it is only in Adam and Eve's transgression in the Garden of Eden, according to Maimonides' reading, that mankind lost their pure state of actualized intellect falling to mere potential intellect waiting to be made actual. 
So while as per Isaiah 55.8 and Maimonides' own warnings, we cannot compare anything of the human who is fundamentally contingent, composite, and created with God who is fundamentally necessary, simple, and eternal, there seems to be something in the act of intellection in thinking itself which does unite the human with God. What seems to unite the human and divine mind in the mind of Maimonides is firstly the very substance of thoughts and secondly the mechanism of thinking. As we've set up until now, it is the divine intellect flowing through the cosmic spheres mediated by the active intellect, the last of the cosmic spheres, to the sublunar human mind which allows for us to think in the first place. It is here that we find a metaphysical, causal, and maybe even substantive connection between the human mind and the mind of God via the fayed, the divine overflow, the shefa, that flows from God to the human through the cosmic spheres. And as such, Maimonides' reading of Genesis is not only that the human is created in the image of God, whatever that might mean, but that we actually have something of the divine within us, or at least something of the divine overflow. At least, that is, when we are engaged in the act of thinking, as we shall see. This substantive link between the divine and human mind, which cannot really be called substance, and shared cognition, which shouldn't be really called cognition, is going to be our first hint in the directions of a rational mysticism, a cognitive union of sorts. The second comparison between things that ought never to be compared is the mechanisms, the mechanics itself of cognition, the mechanism by which thinking itself takes place. But for that, we're going to have to take a bit of a deeper dive into Maimonides' Aristotelian epistemology. Just like when it came to the picture of the universe and its basic mode of functioning, which we presented in the previous episode, the 12th and 13th century views of Maimonides and his contemporaries were very different to ours. So too when it comes to the question of how they viewed the mind and the way it functions. I'd like you to once again put aside any idea that you have of how cognition functions and allow ourselves to step into the mind of a 12th century rationalist and try to see the mind through their eyes for just a second. Maimonides, we must begin by saying, adopts an Aristotelian epistemology, a theory of knowledge coming from the great Greek philosopher Aristotle. To understand Maimonides' epistemology then, we're going to have to back it up and try to understand what Aristotle and the Greeks thought first about thinking. Let us take it to square one. The Greeks believed that all things were comprised really of two things, form and matter, the idea or essence of a thing and the substance of the thing. A cup, for example, comprises of the idea or the function of the cup, say to hold water, this the Greeks would call its form, and then there is the particular substance, the matter, which the cup is made up of, be it plastic, ceramic, wood, or metal, and those things together, the idea of what it is to be a cup, and the actual material of this particular cup, is what makes the cup a cup. For the Greeks, the form of the thing, or the idea of the thing, was what was essential to it. What it was made of, the matter, is accidental. The form happens to be comprised of this one matter in this moment, but it could have just been as easily replaced by another material, another matter, and still have been that thing like the cup. However, if you were to replace the idea, the form of cup, it would no longer be a cup regardless of what matter was being used. When we think of something, therefore, according to the Greeks, what we're really thinking about is its form, because as we've just said, the matter is accidental, it is non-essential, and even if one does want to think of the matter in specific, what they're actually thinking of is the form of the particular matter, but we can put that aside for a second. 
The point is that according to Aristotle, when we're exercising the intellect, when we're cognizing something, anything, we're thinking of its form, that which is its essence. That's point number one. Point number two is that while today we may think of the intellect as an empty slate upon which ideas may appear, for Aristotle, there is no such thing as an empty intellect. When the intellect is not thinking of anything, it ceases to exist, according to Aristotle, and comes into existence only when there is something that it is cognizing. Therefore, according to Aristotle, the intellect can have no nature of its own, for it is nothing but the knowledge of the object it is cognizing. Unlike with our senses, where our eyes and ears continue to exist, even if we're not at the moment hearing or seeing anything, the intellect, with no material substance of its own, does indeed cease to exist when it isn't thinking of something. The intellect is simply the function of thinking about something, taking on the shape of the thing it's thinking about, and in the absence of thinking anything, there simply is no intellect to speak of. Now, if we put those two points together, number one, that if we think about anything, we're thinking about the idea of the thing, the essence, the form of the thing, not its matter, and number two, that our intellect is nothing but the content of the form, the essence of the object it's cognizing, then, from these two premises, the conclusion follows that when we think of anything, our knowledge and the essence of the thing that we're thinking about are one and the same. When the intellect is actively thinking about something, it is identical to the object of its thought, namely the form of the object which it is knowing and thinking about. Unlike us moderns who think of the intellect and the object of intellection, the thinking and the thing that we're thinking about, as two different separate things, for Aristotle the intellect is identical to the knowledge of the thing that it is thinking about, that is the intellect. And to take this one step further, the knowing of the essence of the thing is one and the same with the intellect knowing it, and one and the same thing with the essence of the thing being known. Here we have the unity of knowledge and knowing, and of knowing and the known. And it's from here that we get the Maimonidean formula of the threefold unity of the intellect, which he cites in many places throughout his writings, a very popular philosophical doctrine in the Middle Ages, which he believes to be demonstrably undeniable, that the knower, the knowing, and the known are all united in the moment of cognition. The knowing subject, knowledge itself, and the object known are all identical. That is Maimonides' threefold theory of the intellect, taken from Aristotle's theory of cognition in his text De Anima. Now, to take this one step further, when humans cognize physical things, the union between the knowing, the knower, and the known isn't entirely complete, because the thinking, intelligizing aspect of the subject, that of us which does the knowing, and the intellectualizable aspect of the object, that of it which can be known, do not exhaust their existence. There is more to the human than just their thinking, and there is more to the object than just its form. Both the subject and the object, the human and that which they're thinking about, also, unfortunately, have body and matter. But if the subject, the thinker, or the thing being thought about, the object, have no body, no materiality, then the union between them can be complete, because there is nothing left in them that is not involved in the cognition. In the case of a thinking subject, which isn't subject to the limitations of materiality, when they are no longer matter, then they are entirely an intellect, which is taken on the shape of the form it's contemplating. 
or if the object of cognition, the thing being thought about is immaterial, is entirely form, entirely ideational and essential, then when it is being thought about, there is nothing in it which isn't completely subsumed in the identity of that thinking, nothing of it which isn't being cognized by the intellect, allowing for a complete union between the intellect and the object of intellection between the subject and object. As Aristotle writes, for in the case of those things which have no matter, that which thinks and that which is thought are the same, for contemplative knowledge and that which is known in that way are the same. In such an example of a subject or object that has no body or matter, we find a classic overcoming of the subject-object dichotomy in which the possibility of being fully subsumed in the act of intellection remains. I hope you see where this is going. An example of a subject and object which Maimonides goes to great pains to insist lacks any body or material is God, which means that when God is doing the cognizing, when God is thinking, or God is being cognized, God is being thought about, there is a complete epistemic union, union via thought, between the subject and the object, which is why Maimonides and others before him describe God as the intellect intellectualizing itself, the thinker thinking itself, the knower the knowing and the known as one. Because there is no multiplicity in God, being non-composite as God is, there is no part of God which is not thinking, unlike the human who is comprised of a thinking mind and an unthinking body, which is why Maimonides the doctor in part 3 of the guide looks forward to the weakening and decrepitation of the body and the concomitant weakness of the distracting passions, either naturally through old age or actively through abstinence and moral training. Maimonides, as we'll soon see, advocates a specific method of meditation through which one comes to focus so single-mindedly on one thing, in this case God, to the extent that all else ceases to exist, including one's own body, emulating that mode of divine thought, the active intellect, which contemplates on nothing but itself, nothing but God. Maimonides describes this single-minded contemplation, or really obsession, with God quite evocatively as an act of love, but not an ordinary love, which would have been called chiba or ahava in the original, but calls it instead ishk or cheshek, which gets translated as passionate love, which differs from ordinary love, chiba or ahava, precisely in that, in this state of ishk or cheshek, no thought remains that is directed towards anything other than the beloved. Namely, in a state of cheshek, of passionate love, the individual can think of nothing else but God alone. A state of love in which the individual loses themselves, allowing the person to forget their body, an instrumental step in transitioning and transforming into pure form and pure mind, like one of the cosmic intellects, which contemplates nothing but the intellect and God above it. If the living human can achieve that state of contemplation, and we're going to see that this is a big if for Maimonides, but if they can, if they can focus so fully and unceasingly on God to the exclusion of all else, turning themselves into a pure form, contemplating the form of God, then in reality, according to Maimonides, they are uniting, at least cognitively, with God. Since all of these conditions are being fulfilled, since the subject, the human doing the thinking, is so removed from all else, including their own body, effectively transforming themselves into uninhibited mind, and the object of their cognition, God, is entirely non-physical, then, in that perfect state of mind, in that perfect moment of thought, we get the epistemic union, which exhausts all of its components, we get the unity of the thinker, the thinking and the thought, what we get is God thinking God's self. 
and all, in Maimonides' reckoning, in an eminently rational, demonstrable, incontrovertible way as we've attempted to lay out. What we have here is the entirely rational possibility of uniting with God, of union and even of identity of the human and the divine mind in an act of unbroken loving contemplation, the very first taste of what we might be able to call Maimonides' rational epistemic mysticism. To put this in very simple, straightforward language, to know an idea according to Maimonides' Aristotelian epistemology is to become one with it. To know God, therefore, is to become one with God. For those who are still holding on to the distinction we made earlier in the thought of Maimonides, between that which he adopts from Aristotelianism and that which he adopts inadvertently from the Neoplatonists, it might be worth noting that this epistemic union, somewhat surprisingly but also expectedly perhaps at this point, follows the lines of Aristotelian thought, giving us, in the language of Philip Merlin, a rationalistic mysticism in which the individual is absorbed into the universal, into the divine mind, not the union mystica, the mystical union of the Neoplatonists with a god who is beyond thinking and beyond being, but a Neo-Aristotelian union, a union with the active intellect and with a god who is thought, thinking itself. This way of reading Aristotle's theory of knowledge in a potentially mystical fashion isn't that odd or even particularly new to Maimonides. We find the same reading being made as far back as Alexander of Aphrodisias in the second century, a whole thousand years before Maimonides, whose commentary on Aristotle Maimonides quotes and relies upon heavily. And we find a similar reading being made by the Neo-Aristotelian Andalusian tradition of Islamic philosophy, which Maimonides is likewise heavily indebted to, whether it be in the figures of Al-Ghazali, Ibn Sina, Ibn Tufail, or Al-Kindi, who speak of the possibility of a union between the human and God, or more directly from thinkers like Al-Farabi, Ibn Bajjah, and Ibn Rushd, who talk of the union between the human and the active intellect, either during one's life at the moment of death or in the afterlife. Please do excuse me for the mispronunciation of the names of any or all of those Muslim philosophers. The most famous articulation, perhaps, from amongst the Muslim philosophers of this idea comes from Ibn Tufail, who sought to integrate Islamic philosophy, falsafa, with Islamic mysticism in the form of Sufism, and whose celebrated philosophical novel, Hay ibn Yaqsun, about a child who grows up on a deserted island raised by a pack of deer, who goes on to explore the wisdom of the world in his spiritual quest for knowledge, with its ensuing philosophical discussion of the union of the human with God, going on to influence Jewish, Christian, and Muslim philosophical mystics alike. Check out my friend Philip from Let's Talk Religion's great historical review of this incredible book. Ibn Tufail, in Joseph Montana's reading, sees philosophy as establishing the need for mystical union, as explaining how it is possible, and even as something necessary to avoid confusion on the way. One of the significant ways this neo-Aristotelian Muslim theory of union with God, or the active intellect, makes its way into Jewish thought is via the paraphrase of the philosopher in Yehud HaLevi's Kuzari, a classic of Jewish philosophy, posed as a philosophical dialogue between a Jew, a Muslim, a Christian, and a philosopher before a king looking for the correct faith with which to lead his people. Yehud HaLevi, speaking in the character of the philosopher, describes the pinnacle of his philosophy following closely on the heels of Andalusian Aristotelianism, most closely perhaps that of Ibn Bajjah, thusly. In the perfect person, a light of divine nature called the active intellect will attach itself to them, and their passive intellect will attach itself to that light with such a unifying attachment that both become one. The person thus observes that they are the active intellect itself, and that there is no difference between them. 
This stage is the last and most desired goal of the perfect person, whose soul, after having been purified, has grasped the inward truths of all branches of science and has thus become equal to an angel, and has found a place on the nethermost step of seraphic beings. This is the degree of the active intellect, namely that angel whose degree is below the angel who is connected to the sphere of the moon. These are spiritual forces detached from matter, eternal, like the prime cause, the unmoved mover, God, and never threatened by decay. Thus, the soul of the perfect person and the active intellect become one without concern for the perfect person's decay of their body or their organs, because they, the person, and the active intellect become united and one with one another. As a result, their soul is cheerful while they are alive, because it enjoys the company of Hermes, Asclepius, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, nay, they and them, as well as everyone who shares their degree, becomes one with the active intellect. Namely, as paraphrased by Yohanan Alemano some three and a half centuries later, during the Renaissance, one who is perfect will cleave to the active intellect, receiving a supernal light of divine nature, their passive intellect will attach itself so completely to this light that the person and the active intellect will become indistinguishable from one another. I really wanted to use this quote in last week's video when we were talking about uniting with the active intellect and angelification. It really has all the themes in there and it would have been perfect to explain how this idea comes from Islamic thought into Jewish thought via the incredibly popular work of Yehuda Levi's Kozari. But say la vie, I didn't find this quote in time and here it is in this week's video instead. Let us try connect the dots here. This epistemic union, at its higher reaches, is also described by Maimonides as an act of prophecy, which, as we said in the previous episode, indicates the overflow from the divine, from the active intellect, to the worthy human mind, and the mind's cleaving and uniting back with the active intellect and the flow coming from it. In classic Neoplatonic style, these two directions of union flowing from and returning to, happen concurrently and simultaneously in Maimonides' thinking. Let us spell this out a little clearer. Maimonides' theory of the unity of the knower, the knowing, and the known runs in both directions. When it's read from the bottom up, namely from the human to God, we get a cognitive union and epistemic mysticism, which Maimonides also conflates with the phenomena of prophecy, as we've been saying. From the top down, however, in God's contemplation of reality, God being the subject, and the universe being the object, we get some form of pantheism, the doctrine that God is somehow united with the world, pantheism literally meaning pan, all, theos, God, all is God. Now, to describe Maimonides' theology as pantheistic might be shocking for students of Maimonides to hear, and rightfully so, so let me try explain. Maimonides' threefold union of the intellect does not only function to explain the way that cognition works, or the way one may even cognitively unite with God, but it also serves in the mind of Maimonides the function of explaining and maintaining nothing less than God's unity itself. Making this doctrine of the threefold union of the intellect not only a central epistemological pillar in Maimonides' philosophical system, but also a core tenant in his religious belief, in his theology. Although, to be fair, this modern distinction between religion and philosophy, metaphysics and theology may not have been one in which Maimonides himself engaged with at all. As Joseph Stone points out, Maimonides, along with his medieval contemporaries, refers to metaphysics as the divine science, or science of the divine, and opens his halachic magnum opus, the Mishnah Torah, 
with a statement of the basic scientific, metaphysical, and theological truths a Jew ought to believe in without distinguishing between those three categories, and Maimonides closes the Mishnah Torah with a depiction of the Messianic age in which there will be, quote, no famines and no wars, no envy and no competition, for goodness shall pervade, and the only thing occupying the world will be the attempt to know God alone. And throughout his work, particularly in the guide, which we're focusing on here, Maimonides equates the highest of religious values, loving God, with knowing God, as we've said, and teaches that one can only properly know God through the study of metaphysics, in the absence of which one may form an incorrect notion of God which results in the violation of the most severe religious prohibition, namely that of idolatry. In Maimonides' opinion, then, this epistemological doctrine of the threefold unity of the intellect is both a core of his philosophy and his theology in ways that cannot be separated, making him perhaps something of a seeker of unity, referring to this philosophical doctrine as a foundation of our religion, since only through it can the unity and uniqueness of God be maintained. Let's explain why this is the case. If there was God and God's thought, and those were two separate things, that, in Maimonides' opinion, would imply a multiplicity in God, and that God is not one. But if God is one with God's thought, if God is the knowledge, the knower, and the known, as Maimonides describes God, then God is one. Now, let's take this logic one step further. If there is God and God's world, this would likewise imply a multiplicity in God, unless you suggest that the world is simply outside of God entirely, which would be problematic, however, for Maimonides, who believes that God is infinite, and you can't really have anything outside of an infinite being. Maimonides' solution, therefore, is to describe the universe as a thought that exists in the mind of God, like a genius engineer who designs a complex machine and has all the blueprints, every nook and cranny, memorized in their mind. This, by Maimonides' analogy, is like the world in the mind of God. Insofar as all cognition between an immaterial subject and an immaterial object implies, by necessity, a union between the two, as we've established, we could speak, therefore, of God's relationship with the intelligible structure of the universe as one of a unity, and therefore a form of pantheism, thereby maintaining both God's unity and the existence of the world simultaneously, not a simple feat, and two things which we should not like to give up on too easily. As Gideon Ferdinand puts it, summarizing these two directions for us, the epistemic and the metaphysical, if, in cognition, subject and object are identical, then epistemic union and rational mysticism follows when the human knows God, and pantheism of a sort follows when God apprehends the world. In both cases, the opposition between subject and object collapses, and the direction we're looking at it from will determine if we're going to call it a form of rational mysticism or a form of pantheism, epistemic union or metaphysical union. To get into the weeds of this just a little, there is some legitimate debate here if God's cognition when thinking of the universe would include not only just its intelligible structure, but also its matter, the materiality of the universe as well, making this pantheistic union one which extends beyond the formal to the material too. The great Maimonidean scholar and translator Shlomo Pines was of the opinion that the answer to this question is no, that God's cognitive union with the world does not encompass the world's materiality, and therefore believes that Maimonides cannot be an earnest called a pantheist. In Freudenthal's position, however, the limitation in the case of the human implied by materiality does not apply to God's cognition, which, unlike the humans, has no limitations, namely that God's cognition can cognize matter too, and therefore 
it would be correct in his opinion to refer to Maimonides as a pantheist, and not just a formal pantheism, but a pantheism of substance as well. I'll leave that debate for you to decide. You can have a look at the sources and take your pick. In the last episode, we saw the impact of Maimonides' cosmology metaphysics on his theory of prophecy, which was wild stuff. His reading of prophecy as the perfected individual becoming united with the active intellect and becoming an angel and all that jazz. Another religious domain that Maimonides' metaphysics overflows into, radically redefining yet another field of religious phenomena, which was of central concern to the medieval religious mind, is the domain of divine providence. An issue which weighed heavily on the religious medieval mind was the question of divine providence, or more precisely in the language of Maimonides, divine superstition, hashgacha. The medievals wanted to know, to what extent was God aware of the things going on down here on planet Earth? Did God care enough to watch over what humans were up to, like some cosmic reality show? Did God only know the cosmic, universal, general kind of stuff? Or did God know each particular thing that took place, even down here in the sublunar realm? And if God knew each particular thing, what room did that leave for human free choice? Could we choose against what God knew we would do? And would God then know that we're going to choose against God's knowledge? And if God did, were we in fact choosing without God's knowledge? Did we really have free choice in the absence of God's knowledge? And if God didn't know what our choice would be, would that mean that God wasn't really all-knowing? That God wasn't omniscient? Questions of these sort, on the border of the supernatural and the mundane, on the crossroads of the metaphysical and the material, as we've been highlighting, really bothered the religious geniuses of the Middle Ages. I have my own little theory on what human concern might have been lying behind and beneath these speculations, some form of theology as projected psychology, the human condition writ large on the spheres of the cosmos, but let's focus for a moment on the subject at hand, Maimonides' metaphysics. And hopefully, as we continue to sketch out the contours of his thought, and connect the dots between them, we'll see the patterns and constellations emerging of Maimonides' stellar mind. Maimonides believed that God's providence functioned, take a quick guess, through the medium of the divine overflow coming through the active intellect. No surprise there. It's like he's really going to milk these metaphysical constructs, like he bought them for full price or something. Just kidding. Maimonides believes these constructs to be accurate descriptions of the nature of the universe and of God's relationship with it. So anything that needs explaining on a large scale will be naturally filtered through them. There's something beautiful about the orderliness of his universe and the explanatory power of his metaphysics. But let's not get distracted by the order and beauty of it and just first try to understand it. Maimonides believes, as we've been saying, that all cognition, intellection, and acts of divine knowing pass through this series of ten separate intellects, the Sikhla Mubdalim, in their descending order from the first to the last, the Sikhla Poa, the final, the active intellect. Divine providence for Maimonides is no different. It's an act of divine knowing, and therefore passes through the intellects, through the active intellect, until it cognizes and unites with that which it knows, down here, as cognition works for Maimonides, as we've been explaining, uniting the knower and the known in the act of knowing. But here's the fun part. If providence functions via the flux of the divine overflow and the active intellect, as it does for Maimonides, and if the fired, the shefa, the overflow, flows in both ways, as it does for Maimonides, that would mean that the divine providence somehow works in the reverse too. That it's not just unidirectional from God to us, but it's somehow bidirectional, namely from us back to God as well. And lo and behold, Maimonides believes just that. Maimonides maintains a bi-directional theory of providence that is just beautiful. 
Maimonides believes that the divine providence upon an individual is commensurate and correspondingly proportionate to the amount of divine consciousness the individual calls and draws upon themselves. Inasmuch as one's intellect is actualized in its relationship to the active intellect, it is the same degree to which the divine can cognize and think of said individual through the agency of the active intellect. It sounds so obvious once articulated, but it takes a Maimonides to articulate it in the first place. I'll let you hear it in his own words. Divine providence watches over every person endowed with intellect, proportionately to the measure of their intellect. For those who have obtained a permanent state of contemplation, the providence of God is constantly watching over those who have obtained this overflow. The more in touch a person is with the active intellect, to quote Sarah Pesson, the more we may say of them that they are living providentially. Far from a hand of God intervening in the lives of men, divine providence here emerges as the properly directed life that one who conjoins with active intellect will be more readily able to live. Maimonides' stunningly consistent application of his naturalized metaphysics to the world of religion via the radical and unprecedented merger of theological language with the best science and philosophy of his day creates not only a thoroughly intellectual and defensible version of religion, desperately needed for those who are struggling deeply with conflicts of religion and rationality who could not bury their critical thinking minds in the mud while embracing the god of their parents. Whether in the final word of the guide, the god that Maimonides presents is indeed still the god of our ancestors, the god of theism, is a good question which we'll have to think about. But Maimonides, besides for giving us a supremely rational version of religion, also gives us a religion which is incredibly empowering, and we see this nowhere clearer than in his rereading of Divine Providence, of which we've been speaking. Maimonides, as Sarah Pesson points out, with stunning clarity and religious maturity, spells out the empowerment intended with his radical rereading of Divine Providence. The intellect which overflows from God towards us is the bond between us and God. The individual has the choice. If they wish to strengthen and to fortify this bond, they can do so. If, however, they wish to make it gradually weaker and feebler until it is severed, they can also do that. How does one go about strengthening or weakening this bond, you might ask? To which Maimonides answers, one can strengthen this bond by exercising it in loving and coming closer to God, and one makes it weaker if they busy their thoughts with that which is other than God. This tremendously empowering reading of Divine Providence transforms it from a picture of an omniscient deity acting upon the lowly and unconscious subject, the human caught in the whims of theological deliberations, to an invitation for the individual, if they dare, to stand up, clear and focus their mind, and rain down Divine Consciousness upon themselves as a result. If we can have the chutzpah to riff on the Delphic Maxim, we might formulate Maimonides' position thusly. Insofar as you know God, God knows you. Or more mystically, insofar as you know God, God knows God's self. Thank you for joining us again to learn. Thank you to our patrons who allow this project to continue going. If you can afford it and would like to join them to support this work that we're doing here, please do consider doing so. If you haven't already, you can catch up on the rest of this series here and see the next few pieces that are coming out. Hope to catch you next week. And until then, keep seeking.